It felt like my soul had been someplace else for a really, really long time. I entered into the eye of the storm of grief that I had been carrying. I, I began to cry. The littlest thing would just send me into an anxiety spiral that, like, it's just one little thing. Why is this little thing ruining my day? Elicinia is a unique psilocybin retreat based in Mexico with a focus on meditation, neuroscience, and brain health. I had zero doubt that this was something that I was going to go through and actually do. That self-compassion sort of has trickled into every little part of my life. I hadn't laughed that hard in so long. The profoundness with which I experienced like reality, the magnitude of the beauty was just completely overwhelming. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to introduce to you a change from our normal podcast episode of Personal Stories at Alucinia. Today, we have Andreas Gomez Emelson, the Director of Research at the Qualia Research Institute. He recently paid Alucinia a visit, and it's a very insightful conversation because his research has influenced so much of our science-based techniques and concepts specific to the terminology that we teach and inform. You'll love this conversation about consciousness. Enjoy. Okay, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Elucinia Talks. I am Jessica, the founder of Elucinia, and I am here with a very special guest. We have Andres Gomez Emilson here visiting us, who is one of the founders of the Qualia Research Institute. And he is a, a very special uh, character for us because um, a lot of our program is, I mean, has origins and base in a lot of his work regarding consciousness and the mathematical nature of it and um, just a lot of his work with, with Qualia Research Institute. So welcome, Andres. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, amazing being here. I'm very, very pleased. Yes. Uh, so you've enjoyed your time at the retreat so far? Oh, it's incredible. Yes. That's good. Thank That's you. really good. So um, I want to introduce you to our audience here. And um, I have some questions for you about how to, let's say, start consuming your content. Because it's, pay, it's played a, a pretty big role in my development, my understanding of consciousness. And I would like to, like, so how would you suggest someone start getting into um, your content and uh, just in general, like the, from the Qualia Research Institute. Excellent question. Um, you know, I like to start a podcast and things like that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Introducing a little bit of diversity of sensations. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> this one is, you know. Some new Qualia. New Qualia. You probably okay. haven't experienced it. Uh, or maybe, maybe at a club or something random okay. you have stumbled upon it. It's a O Savage by Dior. <laughs> oh, okay. So we're going for... Um, Sense. A sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, um, you know, it's not that I believe in like, you know, big brands or I want to advertise them or anything like that, but you know, like big brands do recruit very talent, good, uh, talented perfumists. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they do make good, good products. They're extremely ridiculously overpriced. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, the actual cost of the <laughs> juice. Well, is talent cost too. So. Talent cost. Mm-hmm. Yes. And advertisement and all of that. Um, but this one is, I like it a lot because... It has a beautiful Mm -hmm. citrusy type uh, set of top notes, but it also has kind of like Vietnamese salad as a kind of note. 
It's a Vietnamese salad, like the papaya salad. Yeah. Citrusy, yes. Yeah, very citrusy. Very, very interesting. Very bergamot uh, mm-hmm. based. There you go. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is one way. I mean, it's kind of like a psyop in some way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to get people interested in in consciousness and qualia is like appreciate. Well, we're gonna have to go over some uh, yeah. vocabulary yes. words yes, of course. to like to make sure that the audience is catching up. Like because even. Um, the word qualia is something that um, isn't part of many, uh, regular everyday yeah. vocabulary for many people. So how about we start with like defining that? Yes. Okay. So let's start very simple. I mean, ultimately we can arrive at an understanding mm-hmm. of these concepts by relating them to concepts that are more familiar to people. Okay. So we talk a lot about sensations, right? Like people Sensation. are very obsessed with sensations. It's like, well, this food, like it's bad or it's good, doesn't taste mm. appropriate. You know, people have opinions, right? Like, oh, this song, I don't like it, you know? Okay. <laughs> I love this artist, right? Um, but here's the thing. We tend to imagine that like the sensations are kind of like, coming from outside and like we're sensing them, you know, like there used to be like these drawings in medieval, you know, philosophy of like tentacles coming out of the eyes that are kind of like sensing the world around. Okay. To try to explain, like, what is, what does it mean to feel or sense something? Um, well, so here's, you know, kind of a spoiler is that as far as we know, there are no tentacles coming out of your eyes. <laughs> What's happening is that there's like photons, you know, light from the outside environment hitting your retina. And then there is like a complex cascade of neural processing that happens until it reaches your visual cortex and your thalamus enters in resonance with all of your, all of your brain. Um, and the actual sensation of colors of light mm-hmm. are happening inside your brain. So, and the paint with which your visual field is decorated would be the qualia of visual sensations. Okay. Uh, maybe as a kid, you wondered, is the blue that I see the same blue that other people see? Right. Yeah. So, because or you watch those movies where someone magically there's like a body switch and wonder uh, how does that feel? Like when does that person see the same color that I do? What is their experience of blue the same? Yeah. I was wondering, like, like would it be what it would it be like to to have a, a complete switch like that? Yeah. No. I mean, my my um, guess is that people see the world quite differently. I imagine so. <laughs> yes. It might not actually be that much, kind of like how low level sensations are processed, like, you know, the paint, the painting in your visual field, Mm -hmm. the way in which people feel the world very differently is how they manage attention. Like Mm. what, what do they pay attention to? Okay. How does the attention move from one thing to another? You know, somebody who's like, um, like, let's say like more on the spectrum of uh, autism mm-hmm. might be focused a lot on kind of like the little details is like, like, oh yeah, you know, like that shape, like that texture and like, you know, your the thing around your neck, right. like it's all these little, they might not see your face as much, you know, like it's kind of like scanning for like little details. Whereas somebody who's kind of like more empathizer and uh, kind of in the other side is like, no, they're like paying attention to like your face and how you're moving mm-hmm. and how you're feeling. And the details are kind of irrelevant. <laughs> they fade into the background to okay. some extent. Um, people experience the world very differently. And the way in which the world shows to, shows up to somebody would be the collection of qualia that they have. Okay. Um, and it is theoretically possible that the mapping between 
visual, you know, inputs like light to the colors that we feel could be different from person to person. Meaning that, uh, let's say there's this thought experiment called the inverted spectrum uh, thought experiment, where literally it's posited that, okay, when I see blue, what you see is actually um, yellow. Uh, but because every time you've seen yellow, we call it blue. Right, 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 right. <laughs> There's no way for us to figure that out, right? Okay, yes. <laughs> Unless you were able to find a way to describe that very quality of experience in a way that isn't just in terms of references to other qualities of experience, because then... Oh, it, yes. Yeah. Then you're stuck. There's no Rosetta like, Stone between individual experiences to just like plan that out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, so here's yeah, the other, with that introduction, there's like these two terms, qualia, which is yeah, the, the raw way in which experience presents itself. Okay. The quality of sound, the sound feelings, the, the, my experience of, of the orange of your hat. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or, or the scent. Or the scent. That we just, that we just tried. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. What do you think of it? I think it's interesting. I mean, the, these scents always change as they dry. Yeah. As the alcohol like, dissipates. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I really like it. It's in my top 10. <laughs> top 10, okay. Not, not, maybe not top five, but it's top 10. Um, <laughs> consciousness has many meanings, a lot of definitions. I, I mean, I could probably give you like 10 different meanings of the word consciousness. Uh, I think that's been super interesting. We, we don't really define consciousness that well. Yeah. We, we define unconscious, oh. <laughs> but in some, the level, how much consciousness is, is, um, is present is mm -hmm. often measured for medical purposes, oh, yeah, that's right. but the, like how much presence of consciousness there is, yes. but um, what exactly is consciousness is, that's a tough one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Every single definition of consciousness is interesting. Is that what I would say? Like mm -hmm. some people define it or like they focus a lot in kind of the meaning of consciousness as awareness of your environment. Other people define it as like a capacity to recognize that you're a person, kind of like self-consciousness, mm -hmm. like that you're, that you're a self, you know, self-awareness. They think that's consciousness. Um, some people define it in terms of problem solving. Like if you can do problem solving, then you have consciousness. And then by definition, an AI must be conscious. Just by definition. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but I think there is one meaning of consciousness that is the most exciting, the most beautiful and most interesting. And that is the experience you're having right now. Like it's experience focused. It's like the collection of qualia values, as we call it, like the specific type of qualia. Um, and the way in which they're strung together, they're put together, they're bound, bound together. And that whole thing that is your experience is a consciousness <laughs> or a moment of consciousness. Okay. And so with, with that definition, you know, when you're dreaming, you're conscious because you're having experiences. Right. Somebody who's comatose, but maybe has like some flicker of a thought, that would be consciousness. It doesn't matter if they're not aware of their environment. Um, or somebody who's at a party and they're just not connecting with other people, like which would be kind of the meaning of like social consciousness, which a lot of people think about. They're still conscious. It doesn't matter if like they're not relating to others. So in any one of these examples, uh, I'm talking about is there experience or not? Right. Experience. Experience. And that which is experienced is qualia, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. 
So maybe that yeah answers that question. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so we were defining um, defining qualia, but um, so we do borrow quite a few of um, let's say vocabulary words from your work that I've seen so far with the Quality Research Institute and in your, your blog posts. And one of them is like, you brought up a word that I, I had not experienced before it's called valence. Ah, yes. <laughs> like, um, cause like we, we sit here and like, we defined what is qualia. Now then valence, we're getting into like the quality of qualia. Yes. Um, so can you explain what, what exactly is valence? Someone's never heard the word before. What, what does it mean? Yeah, valence is kind of confusing because there's also chemical valence. Most people kind of like... Right, right, think from chemistry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and you know, like to really understand a valence, like it's wonderful we already defined consciousness and qualia mm-hmm. um, because that allows us to understand, hey, valence is a property of an experience. It's not a property of the outside world. So when you eat something that is very delicious, the deliciousness of it would be a valence quality. Okay. Now, when you, you know, uh, <laughs> your hand gets stuck in the, in, in, in the car, uh, uh, a door, you know, you, you hit your, your hand or something and you feel pain, that pain sensation is a property of your experience. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it feels unpleasant and you want to get away from it, that it would be negative valence. Negative valence, low valence. So the thing is that, you know, I do think it collapses into a single number for each experience. However, if you want to have like a more rich understanding of it, mm-hmm. you have to look at the collection of sensations that are present in a given experience okay, and how they're related to each other. And there's a lot of texture. I mean, it could be, for example, that your visual field is like very ugly. You're looking at something legitimately very repulsive to you. Could be. While you're, you know, tasting something delicious. Oh, that's complicated. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that would be a mixed valence state. That okay. means some aspects of your experience are positive, some aspects of your experience are negative. Now, in some sense, they do kind of add up. Like you consider the negative like a negative number and the positive a, a positive number. <laughs> and then you kind of like make some kind of calculus. And, and oftentimes like, yeah, you know, like going to a concert, for example, just after, after a breakup or something like Hey, you need really bad to pee or something, but the music is amazing and you uh-huh. just like smoke the joint and like you're just so immersed in it. That's a mixed valence experience, but it's very net positive regardless. Where like maybe the breakup is in the back of your mind, very thin, going needing to pee is, is also kind of like in the background. So the most of your experience is just very positive. So great. That's so like one experience that comes to mind for me is... Okay, so let's say the last mile of a marathon. Yeah. You are in a high valence state because like you're self-actualizing. You're doing something that, that has value to you. But you know what? Everything hurts. <laughs> yes. And there's nothing about that experience that looks pleasant. Yes. But so that's 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 what comes to mind when I think about like the, the complex valence. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. in that case I would say something like, well, part kind of like the some of the endorphins of running right but then also yeah your spirit your your sense of yes. like accomplishment mm-hmm. and self-actualization that is felt in the field right like yes flavor of experience mm-hmm. that is uh you know part of the soup <laughs> and maybe it's actually a very good soup even though the body hurts right right it's like it's like eating very spicy food but that like has like 
a lot of rich flavor. Mm, a little pain with your pleasure, yes. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so the the words become like really useful to us here at at the retreat when describing like very complex sensations. Like psychedelic experience is a complex sensation, oh, yeah. very complex, and um, I think that we end up like really falling into these uh, very simple words that like like good trip, bad trip. That good is a very common word, but it's also it's not it's not I don't feel like it's specific enough yeah. to really describe these sensations because yeah. it has a lot of it has a lot of baggage, a lot of associations that could come with it. When you say something is good, does it mean that it tastes good? Does it mean that it is morally good? Does it mean that you're being a good person? Or so so when it came to um, or or being the same applies to bad. Um, Sometimes the most high valence experiences in a in, in a psychedelic state, they 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 are they can be a little bit like that last mile of the marathon where when I mean, you're looking at this person with tears coming down their 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 face, they, they it's a very complex thing, yeah. and um, using a term like like valence has been much more useful for us. So. Yeah. I want to thank you for introducing me to that concept. Awesome. It's, it's awesome. really helped me to describe something that is quite, um, quite complex. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, like there is actually kind of like some resistance to thinking about it. Uh, I, I've encountered it in people. Let me just explain, which is that exactly as you said, you know, like good and bad, becomes very loaded. Very loaded. Very, very loaded. Like this is good food, you, you know. Because there's two aspects. To- is it good because it's good for you? Is yeah. it good because it has pleasant associations <laughs> in the past? Is it culturally good? Is it there's so <laughs> many? It's it's it, it's just the word good is not um, not complex. It's it, it's it's not good. Sometimes it's easier to to describe complex things using very precise language. Yeah, because that allows you to layer it to really exactly. get more sp- specific about things. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in a very technical way, valence re- refers to the goodness or badness of an experience in the moment, just a, like a precise... Without the baggage, right? Without the baggage. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, once that is very clear, it's like, okay, yeah, this, like, what is the valence of this one experience? Let's note that down. Right. And then we can also ask, well, okay, maybe the unpleasant sensations that you're having are playing a role that are mm-hmm. important in your development. For example, okay, and I, I find that people kind of confuse that, and, and almost kind of like they reject the idea of like valence because they will say like, "Oh yes, but like actually pain can be good," and it's like, "Oh, that second. gets complicated." Yeah, mm-hmm. like hold on a second. Let's first get our terms very clear. Right. Describe an experience. It's kind of your, your you know that technical detail for describing a piece of art, right? Like describing it. As it is in the moment. Very specific. Very specific. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, it's very, a, a term that I would like to introduce is, for example, equanimity, mm-hmm. which is experiencing bad valence without reacting to it and just let it be. Now, you know, I don't want to say like <laughs> this generalizes to every kind of negative experience, but the truth is that, yeah, for example, in the psychedelic state, when you have quote unquote a bad trip, you're having like a very intense negative feeling about the universe. Getting caught up in it uh, will make it worse. Mm. Whereas, like if you just accept it for what it is, 
and just let it be, it will unravel itself, in, in, at least in many people's experience. Oh. It, can, it can sort of like slowly work its knots out. Uh, and you might need another psychedelic experience actually to continue the process. Uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are kind of like, well, if you had one bad trip, that just means you're, you know, the psychedelics are not good for you or something. But, but no, not that's really, not really. I mean, I can say, I feel like I personally have had quite the spectrum on that, on that side. And, and it's, it, it just it doesn't necessarily mean that to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in, in the process of development of, of a human, uh, psychological development, spiritual development, as it were. Um, there are points that are quite unpleasant, but but they're part of kind of like a bigger arc. Mm-hmm. And experiencing and accepting those unpleasant moments can actually be very crucial for the unfolding of something much more beautiful and holistic. Balanced, However, balanced, balance, <laughs> balance. Yeah. However, this doesn't uh, invalidate the concept of like. That we can describe precisely and very technically. Yes, and that, and that low valence in the moment, it, it sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sucks. So um, I do remember a while back ago seeing some chart, I think that you had, you had shared or put somewhere that was um, talking about energy levels mm. within mm. with valence, high valence, low energy. Um, versus, would you explain that part too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two charts. I'm not exactly sure which one you, you mean because there is one about... Um, the logarithmic scales of pleasure and pain. Okay. And then there's also one about like the DMT space, which is more about the energy. Mm. And, and the valence is kind of implicit there, but it's a little bit more complicated. Do you know which one? I, I don't I don't think it was either one of those. I think it was um, like the idea of, of having um, a high energy, low valence experience. At, I mean, it's conscious, high energy, low valence experience is like, I mean, like very intense um low valence sensations mm. versus um, let's say a, a low energy, high valence experience is more just like peace. Yes. That, that, like that, that I remember seeing, does, does oh, that recall? I see, see, the, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. Yeah. Valence and arousal. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. So this is, you know, from like affective psychology, uh, it's been yeah talked about for, for, a, for a long time. Um, that if you do, you know, there's like these statistical techniques called factor analysis, principal component analysis. If you do that on, for example, like uh, how words uh, cluster together or how people describe experiences or ratings over experiences, there's many ways to get there. If you do, if you compress that into just two dimensions, these two axes, arousal mm-hmm. and valence, always show up as okay. the two main factors. And that's like usually what we communicate a lot. It's kind of like how good, like the quality of the experience, but then how how much of it there right. was. Right, that is right. Like, like turning the, up the volume on that, yes. that conscious experience. Exactly. So you could have like, let's say like a very, very, um, very quiet experience that is very perfect, um, very peaceful. So that mm. would be like low arousal. High valence. Yes. Mm-hmm. But then you could also have like an explosive, beautiful supernova experience, like on 5MEO DMT. <laughs> yeah, euphoria. Enormous euphoria, like mm-hmm. MDMA like stuff. That would be high arousal, high valence. It's like a okay. lot of energy and it's very beautiful. And so all of the combinations are possible. You know, just to complete the 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 square is kind of like depression would be low arousal, low valence. Mm-hmm. 
anxiety, high arousal, low valence. Say high arousal, low valence. I was I always thought of like, okay, um, lemon juice and a paper cut. Yeah. <laughs> Intense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is like, it's even a little bit more complex because that chart applies also to every sensation in your experience. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what makes the chart useful because it applies across multiple, multiple things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a psychedelic experience is very complex, right? Like if you take oh, yes. a couple, mm-hmm. gra- like more than two grams of mushrooms, it will be like, well, I'm having these beautiful, peaceful sensations here, but this part is screaming. It's like, mm. like, are you screaming? It's like, no, there's like, is this complex painting of these interrelated, like qualities of valences. Right. Okay, so um, I do, so th- I do have another question for you. Next yeah. one. Another, another part of your vocabulary word. Yeah. Um, the idea of neural annealing. Yeah. The concept of annealing. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We give like a really, like, begin, let, let's get started kind of explanation on that, um, on that, that front. Yeah. I'll, 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 there's two approaches mm-hmm. that we use and they're kind of like, painting different aspects or, or ways of seeing this. The first one is a uh, metallurgy. Uh, when you work with metals, you know, if, if you're using a metal industrially for, for a while, it develops a lot of kind of like little imperfections and it becomes brittle and mm-hmm. unusable. Uh, essentially you can say like it was, uh, it was worked and like now you can't use it. Okay. Um, and it's like, hey, how are you going to fix that? Because we're talking about like, you know, the atomic structure oh, of the metal. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a like an exp- explanation for it that someone would, because not many people work in metal, right? That's, they, right. that's not something, but I think that um, many people can probably relate to that like childhood memory of roasting um Roasting uh, marshmallows with um, coat hangers. I mean, I'm not saying we should have done it, but I, that's that's yes. Roasting marshmallows with coat hangers. So if you'd like, you take the wire coat hanger and you un- yes. unwrap it. If you bend it back and forth, back and ah. forth, you create all of those um, those stress points that yes. make it brittle. That will make it break. That's an awesome example. That's, oh my god! Yes. Yes, 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 yes. It's very relatable. Exactly. No, not everybody. Not, 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 not everybody had parents that didn't care about them and let them roast marshmallows on. Um, on who knows what that metal is treated? It has a coating on it that probably we should not have been roasting marshmallows on it. But that's 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 my history, yes. And that's how I got lead poisoning. <laughs> yes, that's how I ended up here. Yes. So yeah, those fantastic analogies. So. Yeah. Now, if you take that and you heat it up above what is called its recrystallization temperature, which yes. is like, then it can become very, very malleable for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then if you let it cool slowly, you know, and give it its own time, then the atoms will like rearrange again into Recrystallize, sy- yeah. symmetrical lattice. The stress points are relieved. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's not brittle anymore. Yes. And you can start doing it again. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It. And then, yeah. and then it, once it gets brittle, you can heat it up again and it, re- it relaxes the stress points. And so how, how do we um, relate this to neural annealing? What, yes. Yes. So because we're not cooking anybody's brains here. That's <laughs> a, only metaphorically. Only metaphorically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. As we grow, we develop like models mm-hmm. of the environment of other people. And uh, those models, you know, 
they served a purpose in its time when mm -hmm. we were in a particular context. And sometimes they generalize, you know, like what you learned when you were like five years old in kindergarten or like whatever, like um, it might generalize to adulthood in some interesting ways, but sometimes they don't, right? But they're like really deeply entrenched, mm -hmm. you know, kind of these, what, what is called like priors, like your, your expectations of the world are kind of these crystallized structures. And similar to metals, we posit that because we use them a lot, they actually become kind of brittle mm -hmm. and, and overused. Now, you know, for kind of like, you know, recovering that, that uh, malleability and, and usability, even just like, for example, going for a run or like on a, going to a sauna or something like that might kind of like do the trick of kind of like annealing them again. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that are kind of like energy raising um, activities. I mean, I could list like, uh, like ice bath, high intensity interval trainings, uh, saunas, eating very hot peppers. <laughs> oh, something to flood the senses. Yes. Okay. Yeah, something that overwhelms the capacity for these mm -hmm. uh, priors to metabolize or, or, or digest this, this information or these patterns, this, uh, this is a input, but a much more extreme and intense version of this is psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So for example, you take DMT or psilocybin at a high enough dose, it actually might be enough to sort of like melt these, uh, underlying structures and then forge completely new priors. Okay. Uh, that then, yeah, if, if you have a, a good experience um, or you experienced a lot of equanimity with it, more and more would be a more precise way of putting it because most exper psychedelic experiences will have like some mixed elements. And then you let it cool slowly in its own pace without forcing it in any way. What will happen is that you will have these new priors, these new primitives with which to process the world. Okay. And the idea is that, yeah, a lot of trauma is kind of this overused, uh, stale <laughs> kind of like priors that we have where your, your, your brain or your mind eventually essentially said, um, these actions are dangerous. Don't do them, but they might be just like outdated. And I mean, okay. Like that could be a very adaptive in some circumstances, but, but oftentimes no, oftentimes it's like, no, just something bad happened there and it just does not generalize, but your priors believe that they can be generalized and they don't. And so we keep repeating the same, <laughs> the same psychological process again and again, even though they don't work. Okay. So that's the explanation for neural annealing. And um, so there's another, there, there another vocabulary word that you, that I, I picked up from following your content. There is, um, conscious studies related, uh, like about the binding problem. Oh my God. Yes. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah. Yes. Uh, if we are all made of atoms mm -hmm. <laughs> and those atoms are related with forces, you know, at a large scale, you have like a hundred billion neurons in the brain. Okay. How Some more than others, right? Sorry? Some, Some more. more than others, yeah. I think like the latest number is like 86 billion. Okay. Yeah. Round, let's round it to 100 billion. Um, 
how is it possible that these 100 billion neurons spatially distributed can simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? Mm-hmm. I mean, and here's the important step to realize is that an experience has a lot of information simultaneously. You know, it feels like time is moving. Uh, you may even, I mean, some people don't believe this because they say like, well, but I'm paying attention to only one thing at a time. Uh, but no, yes. I mean, yes, you're paying attention to one thing at a time, but when you pay attention to something, it's contextualized by a lot of other sensations. Okay. And so even just, you know, very atomic kind of precise attention actually contains a lot more information than what you're paying attention to. There is a field of awareness, uh, is, is, a, is a term, uh, for the, the aspect of your experience you're not paying attention to, but that is contextualizing what you're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. All of that information is happening simultaneously. But, you know, there's like a limit in the speed of light in how information can travel. And if you just think of the brain as a bunch of atoms, you know, moving together, uh, there's just no kind of like principled way of saying, yes, that snapshot of the brain is somehow like unified and creates an experience. And, and you know, like the brain doesn't have a natural boundary. Like the boundary is, yeah, it's made of some materials, but it's not special. It's not a special boundary. It's not a metaphysical boundary that says like, yeah, everything within the brain is part of the same thing. And outside is a different thing. You know, how you categorize things is kind of arbitrary. It has to do with how useful that, that categorization is. Mm-hmm. If an alien saw us, they might actually categorize in a very different way. They might say like, yeah, humans actually like left side is one person and right side is a different person. You know, they might have like a very different way of parsing the world. Okay. So the fact that our brain is within a skull is not objectively something that will make everything inside work as a unit or be a unit. Um, and the binding problem gets even more complicated once you realize that it's not just that all of that qualia is happening simultaneously, it's also that it has intricate structure. You know, like, I guess these, there's a ducks in here <laughs> and <laughs> I'm seeing your face and I'm seeing the background and, and you guys are seeing a screen and there's also, you're also seeing the context of the screen and, and all of those qualia have a precise position and they're related in a very precise way. So the question is like, how does that happen? And it, it really legitimately doesn't seem consistent with a worldview where we're made of atoms and forces. Hmm. So, so that is a binding problem. Now, at QRI, actually, we kind of like flip it around. And, and actually we say, hey, no, the, the view that we're made of atoms and forces is... Um, is not the modern view of physics. You know, since the 19th century, when electromagnetism, you know, Faraday and Maxwell, they, like the main kind of like aesthetic change or frame of, uh, frame of mind that they had was, no, the universe is made of fields. Um, and fields is kind of like a, like a sheet, you know, like kind of like a bed sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of like moving around and, and there's like, when you, when you can tense it, or you can kind of like send a little wave on it. So everything is made of those fields. And, you know, in a, in a technical way, the way they behave is according to differential equations, which, I mean, essentially just means that, well, if there's like a pattern of tension that is moving in a certain direction, it will continue to move. There, there's kind of like inertia for patterns of tension. 
And when okay. patterns of tension meet, they uh, interact in interesting ways. You know, they can make can form a loop or they can uh, bounce off each other. Uh, all sorts of interesting things. But the main thing is like, okay, if the universe is a field, it's kind of intrinsically unified. So in some sense, the binding problem kind of gets dissolved once you think about it. But then you have a different problem, <laughs> which is how does that big field of consciousness gets separated into individuals? Mm. And and that's what we call the boundary problem. <laughs> this whole neuroscience thing sounds quite quite problematic. Yeah. Lots of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of problems, yes. The 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 <laughs> This problem, that problem. Yeah. <laughs> the combination problem. Yes. 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 And, uh, but yeah, we think at, at, at Qualia Research Institute that approaching it as the boundary problem mm. is much more fruitful. Okay. And, and we have a solution for it. And it's a fairly technical idea, but it's pretty intuitive, which is like uh, topological segmentation. You know, just the very intuitive perspective here is that if the universe is a kind of balloon, you know, a universal balloon and the surface is the field of consciousness, mm -hmm. you take the balloon by the two sides and you twist it, there is a precise moment where it, you get a pinch point in the center. It collapses yes. into a pinch point. That is a topological change, right? Like you don't have like just a continuous surface anymore. You have two surfaces connected by a point. So what we believe at, at QRI is that the brain is actually creating something like that. It's kind of like creating a pinch point that separates us from the field around us. Mm. And in electromagnetism, that is very common. It's called, yeah, like topological transformations of the electromagnetic field. And it's, a, it's widely studied right now. There's like, you know, an exponential number of papers as a function of a year. Like there's a lot of interest in it. But, you know, only us, if we're <laughs> connecting it to consciousness. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So this this idea uh, also dovetails pretty well with um, the idea of panpsychism. Yes. As in part of a field, little pinch points. Yeah. I mean, you know, the hard problem of consciousness is how is it possible? More that... problems? <laughs> <laughs> yes. The hard problem wow. defined by David Chalmers, uh, a famous <laughs> philosopher, uh, is how if the universe is made of form and structure, how does qualia emerge? How does consciousness emerge? And, uh, well, I mean, are, you, you either answer it by saying, well, it emerges at a certain level of complexity mm -hmm. or it is always there. And we are of the mind that, no, it's always there. Like the, the complexity doesn't create consciousness. Complexity shapes consciousness. Mm. But it's always okay. there. It's always there. like, so the idea is that, yeah, the field is a field of qualia actually, a gigantic field of qualia. And then it gets segmented out into little eddies. It is a way mm -hmm. of seeing it. And okay. We, and you and I are like an eddy in this ocean of consciousness. This ocean of consciousness. And you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a little bit comforting also to think about the, in that case, you are not alone. No. No, no you're no, part no. of a whole. No, no, no. And it, and it completely breaks down like solipsism and things like that. Like yes. sometimes you may think like, oh, this is all just a simulation. Are my parents fake? Is everything yes. fake? It's like, no, no, other people are real. They have their experiences. Well, are they really other people though? 
if we're all that well that that is it, it, i would say the view that we're all one it's a very valuable it's view. just a larger version of solipsism <laughs> you could you could think of it that way um and you, you can get stuck thinking in that way yeah actually i would say the truth is transcends that okay it's stranger it's something like I like strange. Yeah. We're all one, but also we're all separate. Okay. And, and the truth is like a superposition of both, <laughs> which is incomprehensible. That sounds like another problem, Andres. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is incomprehensible, I think, unless you are in a very specific, highly meditative state of consciousness mm. where you say like, ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so... Um, I see one of the things that, that really like attracted me to the, the content that you guys were putting out and then to your work before was the, the idea of like, I, I did have a, like, just a personal experience where, um, I, I mean, I developed a pain condition. And one thing that was interesting to me is because you guys were studying and looking at the idea of like the structure of valence, yeah. the structure of valence, and had hinted also to the idea that this might be something that could be, um, let's say, observed um, yes. in an objective way, which, which we don't necessarily have that right now. There's no one can look at someone's MRI and say, oh, look, this person is miserable right there from from that. This, this person is experiencing low valence just yes. from, from this imaging. Now, like... My question then next was, do you think that there, we will get to a point where these the qualities of consciousness can be observed in a an objective way that let's I'm not going to say that other people can see it that other ver, the other um, twist points <laughs> yeah. that that they could also observe of that yes yes mm-hmm. I think so I'm I'm very optimistic here okay and I think it's a founded optimism so. Um, yeah, the, 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 a core principle here is valence structuralism, something mm-hmm. I've thought of for a very long time. Um, and, uh, the, like, you know, the coining of the term is founding, uh, in Principia Qualia, which is a text by my co-founder, uh, Qualia Research Institute, uh, Mike Johnson. Um, I recommend reading it. It's very good. Um, valence structuralism, what it says is that, the valence of an experience, whether it feels good or bad, has to do with the shape of that experience. Okay. It's a very different way of thinking than, for example, thinking that uh, it has to do with something like um, the semantic content. Like, are you looking at a fairy? Are you looking at your mom? Are you looking at, you know, a candy? The semantic content, uh, we think, actually also has to do with the structure of the experience, how the flows of attention (laughs) Mm -hmm. work. But but the valence doesn't have ultimately anything to do with semantics. You could be in a highly meditative state where you're not really paying attention to meaning. Meaning is just not salient. It's just sensations, tactile, you know, auditory. This texture, that also has a valence. That, that, those experiences will feel good or bad. It doesn't matter what it, they are about. You know, the aboutness of a thought it's not really what makes a thought feel good or bad. Hmm. It's kind of like your response and how the patterns that you feel from that response, how, how those are shaped. And so uh, a core idea of, of valence structuralism is um, 
that it will you know pay a lot of uh dividends is how the, you say it yeah it will pay dividends to um map out the shape of an experience and for example in this year we we did a lot of progress there with uh mapping out which tactile the shape how it shape of tactile sensations feel good or bad and and essentially we're developing a music theory for for body sensations mm-hmm. and it turns out they're they're quite similar to auditory music theory it, it, it all has to do with consonance and dissonance. And so a very painful experience, we would describe it as like it has a lot of dissonant qualities. And the thing that makes it unpleasant is that dissonance, not uh, whether you're thinking about like, well, my grandfather died or something like that. It's more kind of like, no, when you think of your grandfather dying, that thought affects you. And and that the 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 way you respond to it will be through dissonances in your body. So actually, if, if you if you didn't have that response, the thought wouldn't have its impact in in that way. Um, and uh, and and we we do believe that this is measurable uh, in in many ways. I mean, like, what do you think that will look like? The measuring part. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of depending, you know, levels of optimism or how lucky we are. Let's go optimistic, super like optimistic. super optimistic. Yeah, super optimistic would be uh, essentially, yeah, like electrodes throughout your body uh-huh. to map out the flood of blow uh, of blood and mm-hmm. the way in which the cardiovascular system is uh, pumping out the blood, the shape of that. Okay. Uh, combined with EEG and MEG. That's the other. So EEG measures electrical mm-hmm. changes. MEG measures magnetic changes. Okay. If you put them together, then you have a picture of the electromagnetic field fully. So in combination with the cardiovascular system and the magnetic shape. So, I mean, then you apply math. So... Uh, Let's see. Here's another another prop. Here's a a little uh, knot made in a chain. Uh, We 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 make these at QRI (laughs) as meditation tools, but uh, functions very well for for a demonstration. That uh, you know, this could be kind of like a yeah, kind of like twisted knot. You don't know which knot it is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, just looking at the surface of it, even if you can't see the core you can infer what type of knot it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that is like the magic of math in, in many cases. Like, like uh, knots and, uh, and geometric shapes, topologies. Sometimes you only need like the surface of something mm-hmm. in order to infer what kind of shape is inside. Okay. So, well, okay, this turns out this is the, the trefoil knot actually, Right. And, uh, and so it would be something like that. Like you have a, a picture of the electromagnetic field in the surface and you can infer there's a very gnarly shape inside. And what are some utilitarian type of applications that you could see this having? Yeah. I mean, first of having all... Having that knowledge or being able to measure something yes. like that. How could it be applied? I mean, first of all is like detecting and quantifying pain and mm. suffering. Uh, we take that super seriously. I mean, essentially we think that suffering comes in many different varieties, but the, the, and the intensity of suffering can vary enormously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and you know, here's what, ha- what happens with doctors often is like, they're so afraid of, for example, prescribing you opioids 
because they might lose their license if they mm. prescribe too many. Mm -hmm. that, that there's always this this idea of like, are you a junkie? Pretending oh to yes, the, 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 the pain patient that's never really believed. Okay. Yeah, that's that breaks my heart. I mean, it's like, ah, no. Um, yeah, I, I would much rather have a bunch of junkies, honestly, mm -hmm. than like the pain patients not being uh, treated. But, you know, that's, it's a trade-off. Well, what, what about this one? Because this brings to mind for me is like, what about those that are not able to communicate? Yeah, that, that's even worse. Yeah, you're like in a comatose state. Comatose but, state. But what if you're like in intense akathisia? It's intensely yes. unpleasant. You can't tell anybody. So I think being able to measure that would be something very, very yeah. useful. Yeah, exactly. It tells, yeah, that's super, super important. Um, and yeah, I mean, for pain conditions, it would be something like, I mean, A, quantifying, okay, how, how bad is this? Mm -hmm. But B, much better is, okay, you have this type of pain. Is let's, let's say it's a knot in the electromagnetic field that is very unpleasant inside you. Mathematically, you know, that knot maybe is unraveled if you add another shape of a specific type. And okay. They, they cancel each other out. Oh, that, that's interesting. And so you could create a machine that produces that shape in the electromagnetic field mm -hmm. that uh, what it's called like a special, uh, special points or, or uh, topological um, artifacts in the field. You could, you could shape it that way and they may cancel out. So, so it, it might be also for not only diagnosis, but treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and also for cardiovascular issues, um, could be something like, Okay, look, you have like this gnarly dissonance here that uh, makes you very angry. Like the blood goes to this uh, part of your, of your car car um, cardiovascular system, this like uh, uh, cluster of vasculature. Let's add a little vibration to it. Little, you know, even outside in the skin mm -hmm. that uh, synchronizes with it and makes the flow more efficient. And I think like, yeah, like really understanding it is, it is kind of like, very much like conducting an orchestra is something like, ah, the flute is yeah, out of dissonance. When, when you dissonance. when you mentioned that part about like bringing in another um, another sensation, another yes. um, vibration, recall, makes me recall like, you're familiar with how spinal stimulators work. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, that they yeah. Um, they 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 don't like cause numbness. They 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 are you're painting over a a painful sensation from in, with, with the spinal stimulator. So yes. um, it just brings to mind that, that sort of concept of, totally. of adding a sensation in order to balance out or to paint over something else that is um, unpleasant. Yes, mm -hmm. totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of like a hierarchy of desirable interventions. I mean, like mm -hmm. the absolutely most desirable is providing an input that will literally just cancel out the dissonant component mm -hmm. and nothing else. You know, that's, that's the ideal is like, oh, my pain disappeared, but everything else is the same. Yeah. Because people still want to live. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And then, you know, there's like other things that you can do, which is kind of like paint over that specific sensation, uh, or numb it, uh, which in our theory would be like adding noise to it. Yes, that that is how a spinal stimulator works. Adds noise to okay, it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Which is painting not... over it with like a white noise. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that. That is kind of like good, but not the best because ideally you actually just fix the the, the actual dissonance. Uh, 
if the dissonance, for example. Also, it's never good to really have something in your body that requires recharging. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Then there is like, for example, it it all depends on the complexity of the dissonance. Mm -hmm. Like if you have like a really gnarly dissonance that is unpredictable, it moves across the spectrum, it, it moves spatially. Like if it's really that bad and it's just completely unpredictable, like even machine learning can like know where it's going to be, then you might be forced to just, it's kind of like a blunt hammer approach. It's like you just add noise across the body. Mm-hmm. And we actually suspect that for most people, SSRIs are kind of like that. Mm. They're like adding noise and that degrades the signal. It degrades the anxiety signal and the depression signal, but also just a flat line. It's also the pleasure signals. Yes. So, so, mm-hmm. so you have like more flat emotional life with mm-hmm. SSRIs, and it's just very tragic. I, 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 ideally, we we find something. Well, way you know, they, they they do work well for some people. Yes. And yes. when the, when the lows are that low, I think that yeah, I mean, it can be more desirable, but oh, yes. no, they're not not a perfect. Um, not a perfect tool. Not definitely not a perfect tool for everyone. Yeah, and people sometimes have just like mild depression and start using it. Mm, they can. So um, I, we, we're we're going to have to wrap up, but I do want to make sure because I want to make sure that I did a good job of introducing the, the institute yeah. and making sure that like so if you could explain just um, in a nutshell how it got started mm-hmm. and what is on the roster like right now? What is the main, the main focus at this moment? Yes, for sure, for sure. Like where it started compared to now maybe. I mean, it started with uh, let's develop the philosophy here. Mm-hmm. I mean, like my friends and I, we were just kind of, yeah, very hyper-philosophical and like we generally think, I mean, like still to this day, I mean, and, and, and then too, that we had some pieces of the puzzle that mm-hmm. in philosophy that we're missing and also, for example, in effective altruism, how they prioritize different charities um, and also even civilizationally is like what kind of futures should we steer towards? We mm-hmm. were talking to a lot of people, you know, transhumanists, futurists. It's just kind of ridiculous because the way they imagine the future is kind of like, yeah, we will be in Mars and we will be like in spaceships and stuff. Um but it's very kind of like, oh, let's adapt our outside environment to be happy. And so little of like people thinking about the future in terms of how will consciousness be? Hmm. Okay. So, you know, our institute could have actually been named the Future of Consciousness Institute. Oh, that, that was on the, that was on the yes. possibility? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there were a couple more, I think like Institute for the Study of Moral Patterns that was, that was also oh. thrown around and... Um, but but we settle on quality. I like I like this one. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think it's I think it's, and it's like you know it's, we're not talking only about the future. It's just like a, right all the time. So, um, and in particular, yeah, like we we and aligning AI. That's another thing. I don't talk that much about it in in public generally, but that's also something we think a lot about. Mm. It's like, uh, we want once artificial intelligence is conscious, we when we develop the hardware for consciousness. We have to make sure that it doesn't suffer, for example. Okay. Because then it becomes another factory farming type scenario. Everybody has a robot. It looks like it's happy, but maybe it's suffering inside. That would be really tragic. That, that's a pretty controversial subject. Is is it possible for a an AI to be yeah. conscious? Yeah, the short answer, the short QRI answer is that as long as it's a digital computer, it will never be conscious. 
So okay. chat, chat GPT is not conscious. Your computer is not conscious. Don't worry about oh, it. Good, because I'm sure you're terrible. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but there is hardware that is coming up down the pipeline. Uh, hmm. For example, quantum computing, optical computing. Okay. With that stuff, you know, you're interacting with the electromagnetic field in interesting ways. Maybe okay. You might be creating so is focus. it safe to say that the quantum computing, that, 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 is, that is the focus now of like... Uh, I don't think quantum computing will come before optical computers. Okay. But optical computers are already like borderline. But the focus for the institute is oh, on that. On that um, no, no, no. We don't, we, don't, we don't study or focus on quantum computing. Okay. But we focus on optical computing. Optical computing. Okay. Yes, that, that's like, and we do research on that, actually. We're going to be publishing some papers about that. Oh, exciting. Yeah. So where are we? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, three main things. Um. A, continuing to develop the philosophy. And we're like writing papers, you know, publishing in, in academia, <laughs> uh, which is very utilitarian. It's very pragmatic. You know, mm-hmm. honestly, I believe like knowledge is advanced better with just like blog posts. I have a completely honest opinion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because more people read them. Well, that, that also brings up, um, what's the name of the blog? It's um, Qualia Computing. Yeah, yeah. That's my personal. So because people should bring, bring that up. And that's my personal blog, yes. That's your personal blog. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and to give you a sense like, the more out there things I put on quality computing, mm-hmm. uh, really wild the thoughts. The more like digested, worked out things that we're more certain about, that's in QRI. Okay. Yeah. And QRI is not just me. I mean, we have like a bunch of, you know, collaborators and, and volunteers and it's a kind of- Yeah, like I'm, sure they're, I'm sure they're great, but I read yeah. your blog. <laughs> <laughs> but read my blog, yes. Okay. Qualiacomputing.com. Uh, okay. Well, um, so if somebody was going to start- with one of those, because oh. there are quite a few. Which one do you think is the, which, what's the gateway drug for, for this um, exotic thinking? Probably algorithmic reduction of psychedelic states of consciousness. Interesting, okay. Because that, that gives you a sense of the mindset of how we approach consciousness. Okay, that's a, let's, let's say that. interesting, okay. Yeah. And uh, if you're more kind of like you enjoy fiction, I, I I have like a fictional story called Burning Man Theme Camps of 2029. That like is, is the sort of thing that like you read it and it's like entertaining. Okay. But then along the way, there's like a lot of kind of like, you know, teachings about consciousness. And Interesting. Like, okay. It's yeah. Do something to your brain that will then allow you to read other, other of the articles and start to understand them. Okay. So that's that's some good information. Um, I say it's it's been a pleasure having this talk with you today. Yeah. And wait, wait I, I didn't. Okay. Finish mentioning the three things. Oh, three things. Go. Yes. Right. Yeah. So so one is yeah, continuing to advance the philosophy. Uh-huh. The other thing is yeah, these research we're doing with um, uh, the electromagnetic field and simulating it and seeing how it's okay, how to prevent it from suffering and uh, a bunch of stuff like that. And then yeah, the, the third thing is. Um, Psychophysics, we're creating tools to study uh, all sorts of consci- states of consciousness from meditation to, um, to you know, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, psilocybin, which are essentially like visual tools that you interact with and that they look very different when you're in a different state of consciousness. Like, for example, this year we, we got on, in Vice, like Vice wrote articles about us, like two oh. actually, um, about our institute. And one of them was about a contest that we ran for psychedelic cryptography, which is how do you encode messages uh, in a video that 
only people on psychedelics can decode. Okay. Yeah. And, and what that gets us is a proof that psychedelic states of consciousness actually can process information in real meaningful ways mm -hmm. that with sober you can't. Meaning, yes, there's a lot of hallucinations, a lot of randomness, but along the way, actually, there's some things where you gain a computational advantage. Mm -hmm. There is a legitimate way in which on DMT, you're some kind of supercomputer or super qualia computing. You're using qualia and new ways to do computation. We just don't know yet how to harness all of that power. <laughs> That's super interesting. I'm glad you, you stopped me and we, we were around that because I wasn't aware of that. That's really... That's, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Psychedelic cryptography. So yeah, just to summarize, it's like continuing the philosophy, um, continuing to, to, to publish and all of that, then uh, work on electromagnetism, like actual well, physics. Maybe I, I would like to like get my hands on some yeah. of these images yeah. that you're using to check yeah. so we can like check it out here at the yeah. retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're online. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it's, it's been a total, total pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, maybe one last thing I'll mention is that, yeah, we were also like, yeah, just like looking for pragmatic, very pragmatic ways to reduce extreme suffering. Yes. Which is like DMT for cluster headaches and stuff like that, but also like how to reduce kidney stones, um, how to, which is like Chanka Piedra. If you, if you or any family member has kidney stones, put an Amazon Chanka Piedra and buy the highest rated uh, product there. Okay. And... You know, you'll have to believe me for now. We will publish about this. I'm fairly confident it's better than like the medicines that they can give you. Uh, because, well, and this is not non-patentable. There's no incentives to make this into a real medicine. But mm. believe me, there, there's a signal here. Like okay. give Chanka Piero to your family members who suffer from kidney stones and you will be doing them a huge favor. I am very, fairly confident of that. Um, and also, yeah, how to uh, deal with... Benzo withdrawal, for example, uh, mm -hmm. which right now you would have to go to Italy, but I think there's, yeah, therapies for that. There's um, a specialized therapy there for Italy Yeah, it uses a flumazenil, uh, mm -hmm. which kind of counteracts and upregulates those receptors. Okay, yes. And we are, yeah, considering like other methods of administration and, but yeah, I mean, anyway, just like as a, let's say, let's put it this way, we're like, trying to really deeply understand consciousness at a mm -hmm. mathematical formal level. But then also we're looking for like ways to help the suffering that is in the world that is urgent and do it pragmatically. And these are kind of parallel, but you know, they will intersect and like they feed off each other synergistic. But I, I really believe in the praxis. I, I don't want to be in like the ivory, ivory tower of consciousness studies. Mm -hmm. All the time. <laughs> well, little visits to Ivy Ivory Tower, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's important. Good, you know, yeah. It's important to gather the people who are really into it, but but also practical applications. And and it warms my heart when a practical application works and it it changes somebody's life. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you share that feeling. Because yes, you're doing this. definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's been a, an honor and fascinating. And thank you so much for yes. having me here. Thank you for this conversation. It's been great. I will include the links to um, those specific blog posts that, that Andres mentioned so that they'll be easier to find. Um, but thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Infinite bliss.
Thank you all so much for listening. You can find all the information that you need to learn everything about this retreat on EleusiniaRetreat.com. We are a retreat that offers ongoing integration support, breathwork classes, and cultivation support after you have attended this retreat. It's an amazing experience that's one of its kind. If you're looking for a science-based retreat, something out of the box, something to change your life, something to add to your practice, this is where you really need to start, EleusiniaRetreat.com.